Well, hey, everybody, it's your boy, Dr. Markless, coming at you with another episode of the Primary Care Podcast uh, on a very uh, unseasonably nice uh, uh, Saturday morning here in the uh, upper Midwest. Uh, today, we are talking about two small, uh, short topics I think have some high yield uh, from this last week. Uh, but before we do that, I want to hit up the primarycarepod at gmail.com inbox. And today, we actually have two different uh, listeners uh, who submitted uh, jokes today. So we have two different jokes. So thanks again uh, for all the jokes that you guys are submitting. Um, okay, <clears throat> first joke. Dr. List, I found another corny joke for you. Uh, you know, my favorite. My dad jokes are my favorite. Okay, so what's the difference between a poorly dressed man on a tricycle and a well-dressed man on a bicycle? Attire. I love it. I love it. Okay, next joke. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, uh, second joke. Uh, a uh, Dr. List, I know that uh, uh, I got to add a dad joke if you're needing it for future shows and you're running dry, but do you know what drives me nuts? Peanut delivery guys. I love it. I love it. All right, so uh, thanks, uh, Ryan and Gabe, for the uh, emails, and uh, we'll hit it up uh, next week again at primarycarepod at gmail.com. Uh, send me any of your dad jokes, uh, uh, article suggestions, uh, feedback. Uh, always willing to read them. Bob, start that podcast. Music, and let's hit it. Primary Care Podcast is written and edited by a family physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, and medical students interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients and should not be used as medical advice. This is also a personal podcast, produced in my own time, solely reflecting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views or policies of my employer, past, or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List, here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. Well, welcome back to the podcast, Pod Girls, Pod Boys, Pod People. It is your boy, Dr. Mark List. And today we're going to talk about two topics that I think are very, very important to primary care. And uh, we've actually hit up one for my dedicated uh, long term listeners. If you go back to one of the very first episodes of the Primary Care Podcast, it was Primary Care Pod episode five back on October 6th of last year. Oh boy, getting a time machine and go backwards. We talked about new asthma guidelines from the GINA, the GINA guidelines, which is the European Asthma Association. And in those guidelines, we talked about how for your mild intermittent patients that, well, they call it mild, you can just give them short-octane albuterol, but you can also do, uh, to prevent more flare-ups, you can give them PRN, inhaled corticosteroids slash formoterol uh, inhalers, and that significantly reduced the amount of asthma exacerbations in your mild and intermittent kind of patients, um, and it reduced the need for uh, prednisone treatment, et cetera, um, and, and was, from a cost savings perspective, perspective, was much, 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 much better than putting somebody on a daily in, inhaled corticosteroid, okay? And that was the European guidelines, and this was last year. So just this week, the national, hold on a second here, I always mess up their names, the National Asthma Education and Prevention Program, the NAEPP, which is a terrible acronym. I think I complained about it on the last episode we did because it's garbage and doesn't roll off the tongue. They just came out with their new recommendation, which updated their 2007 guideline. Okay, so this applies to adolescents and adults only, not pediatrics, so we'll get to that apparently in a different update. So there were no changes from the 2007 guideline of asthma management, okay, in step one. Step one, mild intermittent asthma, they just call it intermittent asthma in their guidelines, just PRN albuterol, period, rescue therapy only, okay? Step two is where we see a bigger change in mild persistent asthma. 
Classically, this was low-dose daily inhaled corticosteroid with a PRN beta agonist. Now, they update the recommendation to also in this, you can just do, or instead of doing the daily inhaled corticosteroid, which has significant issues with people who are uh, non-adherent to it, uh, cost perspective, lots and lots of problems with this kind of stage, they recommend for mild persistent asthma that you can do instead an an inhaled corticosteroid as needed with short-acting bag agonist therapy. So instead of doing a daily low-dose inhaled corticosteroid, just as needed, you could take both short-acting albuterol and inhaled corticosteroid, which that is a new, new combination, okay? When we jump up to step three, which is the... um, moderate persistent asthma, right, on the on the step-wide guidelines, their recommendation is some inhaled corticosteroid with form motorol. And we talked about why this makes a difference in, um, in our last update a, a year ago when we talked about asthma, okay? Because form motorol, for motorol, oh my God, I hate that medication. We're going to do this a hundred times. Form motorol is a lot quicker acting, than salmeterol, salmeterol, salmoterol. Oh my God, why am I doing these topics? I say it every time I do an asthma topic, how I cannot pronounce these at all. Salmeterol, okay? Which is, so what are we talking about? Uh, they prefer in these guidelines using uh, US trade names of Simbacort and Dulera over Adver or Airduo. The European guidelines specifically call out uh, what we call in the United States Brio, which is fluticasone slash Valanterol, because Valanterol is more quick onset than Salmeterol, but not as quick onset as Fomoterol. So when we're picking out these long-acting bag agonist inhalers for moderate persistent asthma uh, and on, the guidelines actually recommend only using your Simbacort and Brio, which uh, Simbacort, of course, is the budesonide version, and uh, Brio is the fluticasone version with Fomoterol. So that was for step three. So step one, again, short-acting bag agonist. If you need to go up, you can do the daily inhaled corticosteroid. But in the article from Gina, which was a year ago, they talk about how, and, and studies have well-documented this over time, patients really aren't good about taking daily, especially twice daily, inhaled corticosteroids, even at low dose, and how compliance is poor and it leads to more flare-ups versus just doing as needed inhaled corticosteroid and short beta agonist therapy together is a decent option for a lot of patients. And then again, step three, then we go to fomoterol with an ICS that's Simbicort or Brio. All right, so step four, not to get in the weeds, um, basically the exact same thing, but just increase the therapy, um, increase the dose of the uh, Simbicort or Brio, okay? And I hope nobody's offended I'm using trade names. It's way easier for me to say than the generics. Uh, if you're not in the U.S., uh, you can Google that. But yeah, uh, the budesonide slash motorol or the uh, fluticasone slash motorol are now the U.S. recommended steps for step three and step four, which is moderate persistent and severe persistent asthma. Um, and step five, you can add a LAMA, actually, is now recommended, who, if you can't control it with Brio and Simbicort, the fomoterol-based ICSs, the long-acting daily, um, and you're still having breakthrough symptoms, an add-on LAMA is now recommended, 
which I think is pretty cool um, because uh, llamas uh, usually get pretty good compliance and patients usually like those. Uh, so something like a Spireva or one of the other ones um, that are in that family, again, not to use brand names, but those are the, the ones that we normally think about for COPD management uh, now on the guidelines or the, uh, with the guidelines now in combination with the uh, simple quarter Brio. In this update, um, they also talk about subcutaneous immuno immunotherapy is recommended as an adjunct to standard pharmacotherapy in patients whose symptoms and are sensitive to specific allergens. Um, they still are not recommending sublingual immunotherapy um, for asthma specifically, uh, just as not part of standard care yet. Um, I have I have specialists who would disagree with that and use sublingual immunotherapy uh, significant uh, in significant numbers. Um, but again, with the guidelines, they prefer if you're going to do allergy shots, do allergy shots, not the allergy sublingual tabs, um, if you're going to help with their asthma, which for a lot of patients, if you have very specific allergen specific um, mitigation measures that help, uh, that's a huge, huge, huge option, aside from just throwing them on these super expensive inhalers. So something to think about. Of note, in this, um, in this uh, article that I read, no mention, no mention of Singulair. Uh, which has been on previous uh, stepwise processes as kind of add-on adjunctive therapy. So a little bit surprising they don't even mention that at all. Uh, Montelukast for you non-Americans, but Singular, um, which is surprising because uh, I found that to be very um, helpful as an adjunct to a lot of patients with kind of this persistent asthma symptoms, persistent allergy symptoms, despite uh, good treatment. Um, I thought Singular is a pretty good cheap option. And we've had that discussion in previous um, podcasts about uh, black box warning, which got added, which was probably an overcall. Um, but again, so uh, those were the newest asthma recommendations that just came out this week. And again, I think uh, practice changing. Uh, I talked about it on the episode from last year. There's some really good data on cost savings switching people from a daily inhaled corticosteroid onto an as-needed uh, version. The European guidelines recommended Simicord as-needed. These guidelines recommend using both an inhaled corticosteroid by itself, not a combo, plus a short-acting bag agonist as a PRN use for that um, step up from albuterol in the, um, quote, uh, mild persistent asthma in, in step two, basically. So... Um, or moderate persistent or uh, moderate intermittent. Oh, hold on, hold on. I don't want to mess things up now. Uh, the uh, mild persistent. Yeah, so mild persistent. Uh, they, you know, they talk about that as needed instead of the daily inhaled corticosteroid. And again, the European guidelines say start with Simbacort as as needed. No mention of uh, albuterol, just kind of like as a, as a backup. Here, they still recommend an inhaled corticosteroid PRN with a short-acting bed agonist. Again, I think for Fomoterol is fast enough acting that the European guidelines say just give them one inhaler, not two. Um, the, Europe the American guidelines still want that short-acting rescue. Um, so again, not much difference, but this kind of fits with the Europeans, what they did last year. I said last year, um, you might want to wait till the Americans change their... Um, their guidelines, if that made you feel more comfortable as an adult. Uh, I've switched and I've had great patient buy-in. Um, I think it works really well. Um, I don't have a humongous asthmatic population, um, but the asthmatics that I do have on this, um, it has been a great change for them um, as a next step after just albuterol. So again, uh, it saves people money. Uh, don't have to worry about compliance issues and patients are overall happier. So that's really all I have to say about that topic. Um, I think it does change practice. and I think it makes a better healthcare. Uh, the next topic we're going to bring up is something that uh, I got, uh, uh, I've had many, many patients ask me about this, and, and not just patients, but like people in my social circle, friends, family, 
who either they have had a colonoscopy or their loved one has had a colonoscopy. And then they get the question, my doctor wants me to come back in X amount of years. What do you think about that? I think it's a little aggressive. And if you know me, I think that there are a lot of subspecialties who are medically, ethically, uh, uh, they put medical ethics aside when it comes to profit margins. And GI is one of those groups. And let me tell you why. Because I've seen more people with a single small polyp removed go to a, we recommend you come back in three years. Oh, we took off two polyps. Recommend you come back in three years. Oh, we took off one polyp. Come back in five years. And I, I've just always repeated verbatim to my patients what I was taught in residency, what I was taught in medical school by attendings. And so I wanted to actually go and look up the guidelines because I'm a huge nerd and I want to get things right and I want to practice good medicine. But I, I, I've never, honestly, I've never physically gone and looked at a guideline from any of the medical societies about follow-up colonoscopy after polypectomies. I, I've just never done it. And so one came in a clinical guideline update which these aren't even new articles, right? This isn't even a new update. This is just a review of the update. This was released in March of 2020, okay? And then I've got another one we're going to talk about, okay? And this comes uh, from the consensus update from the U.S. Multi-Society Task Force on Colorectal Cancer, okay? And this represents the American College of Gastroenterology, American Gastroenterological Association, and the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy. Don't ask me why there are three groups representing the GI docs. I have no idea, but this is a joint statement, okay? They represent all three, okay? Now, what is the recommendation? A removal of one or two tubular adenomas that are smaller than 10 millimeters, smaller than a centimeter, the recommended colonoscopy is 7 to 10 years after removal. And when I read that, I about fell out of my chair because I don't know a single, single general surgeon or GI doc in my region that would take off two polyps and say, okay, you come back in 10 years. Not a single one. And that shocked me. That shocked me when I read that, that that was the actual consensus guideline recommendation from March of this year. Okay. If, oh, and by the way, this is a strong recommendation with moderate quality evidence. So this isn't just like some like, oh, poorly studied, uh, this is the academic version. No, no, this is, this is recommended based on the evidence, okay? Repeat colonoscopy is recommended in three to five years. If you remove three to four adenomas that are smaller than 10 millimeters, which is a weak recommendation with low quality evidence. Okay, so what about uh, if you have five to 10? Five to 10 lesions, they say three years. It, locally, I will tell you that they come back within a year. If there's like 10 adenomas that they take off, they'll have them come back in a year or two. Um, most time within a year. Sometimes even more frequently than that. Um, but those are, again, if they're smaller than 10 millimeters. Now, let's talk if they're bigger than 10 millimeters. These are the ones, um, the adenomas that get a little bit more attention, a little bit more high risk. So if you remove one or more bigger adenoma, okay, so a full centimeter in size or larger, it is a three-year recommendation. So again, when people ask you that, you have to find out what size they were or histologically if there's anything concerning with them. Uh, and this comes to the last piece. Uh, repeat colonoscopy is recommended six months if they can only get piecemeal resection of a large adenoma that's two centimeters or larger, or if anything is sessile or serrated. Again, two millimeters, 20 millimeters or larger, two centimeters or larger. So the bigger the polyp, the faster the, the turnaround. 
But I will tell you right now, I can guarantee you that there are gastroenterologists in your area, that there are general surgeons in your area, having people come back five years later if they remove one tiny little polyp. Because, oh, we found something, come back in five years. Because that was the old guideline recommendation that I remember hearing about from everybody, every doc that I worked with in residency and medical school. And I have just repeated that verbatim to my patients saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, they got, they got to make sure that they come back and that them turn into colon cancer. And we've talked on previous episodes that the national guidelines have now changed and that we can probably start doing colonoscopies at age 45 as long as insurance pays for them. And that's going to cause more and more colonoscopies because we're starting to age earlier. And so that's going to cost more and more healthcare dollars. And we want to follow the guidelines and make sure our specialists are following the guidelines and our patients are well-informed. And doing that means not over-diagnosing, not over-treating, not over-scoping. And so these are the, the consensus recommendations from three American GI groups Again, American College of Gastroenterology, American Gastroenterological Association, the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, all three of them, one to two small tubular adenomas, less than a centimeter long, seven to 10 year follow-up. Okay, okay. So that's the takeaway. That's the takeaway. Three to four, it's five years. Uh, again, if they're small, if there's 10 of them, five to 10 of them, but they're all small, under three years, three year follow-up. And then again, if they're larger, three-year follow-up. If they're super-duper large, six months. If they have you know, weird-looking um, sessile or um, they only could remove them piecemeal because they're so big, then those need probably quicker follow-up at six months. So uh, the next time that your GI doc tells your patient to come back because they took off two pops and tell them to come back in three years, you can tell them, you can send them the link to their own guidelines and say, I learned on the best podcast in history that we do not need to be this aggressive and we can follow up. Because again, as we start earlier, we're going to see one polyp in these 45-year-olds. We're going to see one small little polyp that gets taken off. And it's just a simple tubular adenoma. It's small-sized. That's a 10-year follow-up, 7 to 10-year follow-up. They should follow the guidelines. We should follow the guidelines. We should promote good science. We should promote good medicine. And that's all I have for this week. Uh, so again, thanks to the uh, listeners who sent in uh, uh, jokes. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you want to go back and listen to the old European guideline discussion about um, asthma, that's in there uh, October 6th. It's one of our very first ones all the way back. I think it's the fifth episode or so. Uh, the, earlier this year, we talked about the colonoscopy guideline changes. Hit that up in a previous episode. I didn't look up uh, what episode that was because I'm too lazy to do that. I'm sorry. Um, but uh, it's in the uh, iTunes or uh, SoundCloud or Spotify or uh, Google Play uh, store list. Um, and again, thanks for tuning in for the Primary Care Podcast. I appreciate everyone of you for listening. This has been uh, Dr. Mark List with Primary Care Podcast. Again, hit me up, primarycarepod.gmail.com. And I will see you next week. Remember, you don't need to stay up all night to be up to date. Thanks and have a great week.